7 o'clock, and here we go. Monday night, time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Uh, Mike Balsamo, going to be a good one, but it's a pre-taped one, Ira. We taped this uh, Monday afternoon because you've got plans for tonight. Yes, I'm going to go. Can you believe this? My first heat, I'm embarrassed to tell you. <laughs> first heat game of the year, Heat Bulls tonight. So the yeah. two top teams in the East, I want to go down. We got done with football, got done with the Honda Classic. There's no spring training games here to go to. You know how. Yeah, this you'd month, be there every day. <laughs> this is my month in Florida. You have Honda Classic, you have spring training, then you have the tennis starting. Right, and yeah. you have the, but you have Miami starting in three weeks. Mm-hmm. There's just so much. Now, all I could do is I could go see the negotiations. You know, I'm a, I like legal negotiations. It's in Jupiter. Yeah, we could just go and watch them. I, and sit the, you know, at the, the Roger Dean Stadium and watch them negotiate and decide how they're dividing the money up. So, <laughs> Well, we'll talk about baseball a little bit um, later. Uh, I, I, you would be the perfect person to go in there and, and moderate this, I think, <laughs> and get it done. Uh, you know, you said, you know, it's your first heat game. You have good excuses, though. You've been all over the country for the past couple of months, but I don't know if you walked as much as you did in any of those events, as you did over the last, say, six days. Uh, tell us what you've been golf doing. Golf is hard. I'll tell you what, I've been there <laughs> since Wednesday and you had Kepka and Fowler and I just got so, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I'm going to give myself an A for my pictures and my videos because I think I'm the best person out there to know exactly where the <laughs> angles were. I, 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 I probably play, the, like when I see a ball go in the green, I knew exactly where to go to to get the comeback from the green. Like, it was amazing. Like, I just have a feeling for the course, knew where things to go. I... I really, I felt this was the first year. How many years have we been going to this? I finally have figured out how to do this the right <laughs> well, way with you, it. You've walked the course 60 times probably over the years. So, yeah, you're getting it down. By the way, follow Ira at Ira on sports all across social media. You did nail it, though, and you're showing me videos before of, you know, Daniel Berger had two massive chip-ins on Sunday to keep himself in contention. You had a better picture than the camera guys. You saw it better, you know, there than I did on TV. Well, so I go wanna, to Iron Sports. One of the photographers said, they go, they saw me go to one hole and they said, I had no idea where you're going. I thought <laughs> you were crazy. And then you realize like Fowler hit it in the stands and I ran up in the stands and the only view of it was from the top looking down on Ricky Fowler. Like I sort of had this read of everything. <laughs> I love it. And it was hard. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not inside the ropes. I mean, someday when I'm inside the ropes will be the greatest thing, but it was like, <laughs> it was fun. It was fun taking these videos, you know, and pictures and just watching it. And, and I wish, I look, I wish there was more big names to follow. Mm-hmm. Ricky is a big name and Kepka is a big name. And then certainly the leaders of Daniel Berger and everything, but it was fun doing that. At Ira on sports across social media, see what we're talking about with Ira's <laughs> up close and personal uh, exclusive videos. So we've got two big guests tonight, Ira. First is going to be Ian O'Connor. And this, this is one you were really excited about. It's personal to you. And you think that this guy is just phenomenal. The book is great. It's a book on Coach K. He's a New York Post writer. He's He wrote the definitive book on Bill Belichick. He is one of the greatest writers. And sometimes we have these great writers. We just we we taped that a, like an hour ago. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we have great writers that maybe can't do the interview. The interview is as good as the writing. It's perfect. He, he uh, you know, encapsulates everything about Coach K, the good, the bad. And as someone who knows everything about Duke basketball, because I've watched thousand games in my lifetime almost them i think that uh it was it was a great i'm so excited to have him on our show that's what you said after the interview like you learned a lot and for someone who's basically a historian of duke yourself if you're learning a lot then uh, you need to hear from ian o'connor that's coming up here in just about 20 minutes or so and then a little bit later after that we're going to talk to gary pomerantz and there's a good reason for this one as well he's the expert on wilt chamberlain and people might not realize that on march 2nd is the 60th anniversary of wilt chamberlain scoring 100 points 
that's a big deal because no yeah. one else has ever come close to that, and except Kobe, but in, in, in eighty. But I mean, the idea of that he scored hundred points. There was no media. There's no video of the game. There's no nothing, and it's the number that everyone talks about. If you hear someone score like thirty points in the first quarter of a game, yeah. people are like, oh, you know, look how far away he is from Will. Like the day that someone scores hundred a game, I mean, the world will stop. I think. Uh, yeah, I don't see that happening no. anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, let's go back to it. Honda Classic. Congratulations to your 2022 Honda Classic champion, Sepp Straka. Didn't do it the conventional way, and this was a really interesting, bizarre, and soggy Sunday, Ira, but it made for a good golf tournament. Yeah, I mean, Sepp Straka was third. He really was 176th in the world starting for the event. Uh, he had never really done well in the majors, and uh, this he came out. He's a University of Georgia grad, graduate. He went to Austria. He grew up in Austria, then was living lived in Georgia, and a big win. And I want to be honest with you. I saw him hit maybe two strokes. I he, he was fall. He was in the group behind the Berger Lowry group. But sometimes, like at Genesis, I told you I could jump between two groups. It was too hard at the Honda to do that. And also, he was ahead of us by so much that I never really came up to him. His whole like we were never waiting for them. They were they were they were playing faster than the Berger Lowry group. So let's talk about everything you know leading up to this. Um, obviously, you know you media pass. So you're there from from the pro am on. And the, normally for me, I love the pro am. So much quieter, you get right up close to personal, and you see the golfers be themselves, not these hyper competitors. So you were there on Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday for the Pro-Am. They, now, they play a little different. They only play nine holes. So they had almost every golfer out there playing nine holes, so they would play nine and then leave. Um, and then it was a way just, it's, it's clearly much relaxed, but there are no stars. Remember the year they had Ben Rotzeberger and Roger Clemens and Toby Drew Keith? Drew Brees used to come uh, a lot. Nothing. They had no stars yeah. out there. So they just had people who paid the $10,000 to play with these stars. <laughs> and so I, I was really upset that I didn't get to see that. At least I got a chance to watch the walk the course, get close. I mean, that anyone, if you want to see the stars, that's the best time to, to see, not the stars, but the like Brooks and Ricky, because the, the crowds were very small. I thought the crowds were pretty small Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Friday, Saturday, just enormous crowds, uh, as big as they've ever been uh, on Saturday. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, when you said they, they only played one, they only played nine holes, they would typically play the back, I would think, so they could practice on the bear trap? No, actually, they went with a group, like they would, like a group. Say you paid, the, you'd play with two pros. Yeah. The first nine, you'd play with one pro, and then oh, the second okay. nine, the next. So you got the full 18 experience. You got if full you 18 okay. with two different pros. Gotcha, so. gotcha. Um, so let's go to Thursday, Ira, and it, we, we kind of, I, I, I was high on Daniel Berger going into it, and he came out and did exactly what he had to do. But let's talk about the entire day and you know what what happened because it was kind of quiet there in the afternoon. I was watching in the evening, and the stands weren't crazy in the bear trap. Well, I'll tell you, I got it because they were by the end of the day they were they were they were empty. I mean, I I started the day in the morning with Brooks, Joaquin Neiman, who just won the Genesis. So I mean, I just followed Joaquin Neiman for like two rounds of the Genesis, and yeah. now I'm following him again. And Mackenzie Hughes in the afternoon, I followed Matthew Wolf, Keith Mitchell, and, and Ricky Fowler. Uh, but it was uh, it was like one of those things where Neiman started off great. He had four birdies and a bogey on the back nine. It's like wow. I mean, he's just everyone's thinking what oh. uh, he's going to be back to back winner, and then suddenly he had a double. On, uh, on four and then in bogeys on seven, nine, where he started the, on 10 and then he came back. But you see, he did well on the bear trap holes and then he just fell apart. Uh, and then just, you know, I said, I, I mainly felt Brooks was, uh, uh, you know, just a normal minus two, you know, just, I think Brooks Kepka played this. He played while well, he finished his tournament minus two. I think what he did was he played this like a major where he even in his interview, I saw the interview that he had on Wednesday and he says, look, I'm going to, there's five holes I'm going to try to birdie and those are the par two, par fives and a couple other holes I might get. And 
that's how he, and he plays it. And that's why Brooks doesn't win a lot of PGA Tour events, but he wins the majors. And that's why he's so great in the majors, because he plays it like the majors. Even Shane Lowry made a comment that I liked. This is a major type of feel. They asked Brooks, they said, could the Honda be a major? He said, they'd have to make the greens. They'd have to change the greens. Everything else, he goes, you could play it as a major. They'd have to do something with make the Make them more so, difficult, maybe? Yes, make them more difficult. So. Why do you think... What do you mean when you say, and he says that he's lining up for a major, like playing it that way? I get what you're saying is he's just going to, he's only going to attack on, say, 9, 18, and 12, and that'll be the three holes well, I tried to burn. Well, 1 and 18. So, what's the strategy there that's different in a major than playing in a regular tournament? Well, I think at a regular tournament that everybody, I mean, he felt like, you know, I think the idea is that he was going to play conservative, thinking that the winning score, I have a cousin, Bruce, said he thinks the winning score is going to be 10 under. When Berger was at 10, I said, that's crazy. I think you're nuts. Yeah. But it was right. I mean, it was it, with the wind and the water and everything that you have to be careful. You don't want to make the double bogeys that plagued Berger there when he when he fell back. I mean, he was at 11 under and fell back on Sunday two strokes, like immediately. I, I feel like the lowest score we've seen in the decade we've been covering this is like a minus 12, winning like that. So yeah, it doesn't go to 20 like you will see in some golf tournaments. So what else happened here on Thursday. Um, really, like Fowler was at, at three under, so at three under, but then he double bogey nine, and then back to back bogeys on ten and eleven. Uh, and it's like Ricky, you want he has won this tournament before. He's ranked one hundred twenty first in the world, but he hasn't won in three years. Um, here's someone who's won the Players Championship, was second in the Masters. I mean, was you know in every commercial, and he is a huge fan following. And you're just waiting for it. It's not like he fell off the planet and they can't play golf, but it's just that he's not. He's certainly struggling, and you and you just you start to see he is getting frustrated. He's changing his stroke oh, swing yeah. and everything, and it's a way to do it. And so that was, I think, one of the things. And then Kirk Kitiana ended up leading the first day. He had a 64, six under. Um, he had missed his last four cuts. He, and has no top 10 and 245 starts, ranked 289th in the world. So he got out to that to that early, you know, and then Sabatini, Roy Sabatini was at five under. Former winner, yeah. And Daniel Berger was at five under. Um, he missed three birdies at the end, which he could have actually gone even lower. Berger could have had that lead, but but he didn't lead wire to wire like Neiman did, but certainly just one stroke off the, the pass. And then I thought about you because I thought Berger's shoulder was going to hurt, and you were said, "Oh, I think he's going to." You were you were so convinced that Berger was going to win this. He's the best guy in the field. And as I far swear, as I, would tell. I just and you were. I'm like, Mike is right. Mike is going to be right the whole up until the third hole. I was yeah. like, Mike is a genius. Mike is a genius. <laughs> so let's talk about. You always seem to run into well a lot of the golfers' families. You end up meeting these people's mothers, fathers, but you always run into their girlfriends too. You've had great experiences is great experiences with Paulina Gretzky and you ran into Jenna Sims, Brooke Kepka's uh, fiance. Super sweet again. Well, you know what? Jenna was amazing. I want to tell you something. I, it's it's you hear about these superstars like wives and everything, and they're they're in the sky boxes, like in the golf. Yeah. They're walking around like they have mm -hmm. no better view than you do. <laughs> that just paid a grounds pass ticket. And Jenna was amazing. She would just anyone come up to her, anybody wanted a photo, she would take. I didn't see her decline one. I walked eighteen holes. I didn't see she must have taken a hundred photos with people. Never complaining. Never whatever. Just wonderful. Actually, tremendous. Do you know that. Um, but it was weird. I rode over on the media bus with Brooks Kepka's mom uh, going there. And she's like, I have 36 holes because she did 18 with Brooks and then another 18 with Chase. They didn't play together <laughs> in the group. So she was going to have a long day. But uh, uh, but no, I was really impressed. I mean, Jenna was great with the, the with the fans. And it is different than in other sports where you think, oh, you'll never think, you know, never yeah, They're see. not drinking champagne in, no, the, in those suites. <laughs> right. Oh, it's Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ian O'Connor on the way as well as Gary Pomerantz. It's going to be a great show. So let's go 
sort of Friday, Ira, what happened here on, as uh, we tra- started to shape up to see who's going to make it to the weekend and who's not? Well, Fowler started out, so I always love Fridays because the cut lines are really important to see what happens with that. Fowler was on the cut line at plus one, and then he bo- which was then he bogey nine to go to plus two, and I'm like, you're right, didn't make the cut. Yeah. But then the cut line moved to plus two, so that helped him get in. Neiman was safe going into seven. He was at two under, so he started the day, went seven holes. He was two under. He was almost in contention, and then he bogeyed seven, bogey nine, bogey ten, and then on t- 15, he double bogeyed. So he ended, he had a plus three. I mean, here's someone who was in contention and went like 11 holes, and I just think he ran out of gas. So much of the Genesis, so much of I mean, he was playing well, and then it just all, it's probably tired from winning the tournament, all the interviews he had to do afterwards, come to Honda, and then it's Friday of golf, and, and he's out. So, uh, but I was like, he fell out. And then look who didn't make the cut, Patty Harrington, who we've had on our show, mm-hmm. two-time major winner. Chase, former winner of this tournament. Former winner of the tournament. Chase Kapka didn't get in. And how about this? Sun J.M. came in as the favorite of the tournament, past winner, and he didn't make the cut, and neither did Matt Jones, who last year. One last year. It started with a 61 on the first day. And then big names like Zach Johnson, Tommy Fleetwood, uh, Jim Herman, uh, Patrick Reed shot a 70 and a 79. Uh, you mentioned Camilo Villegas, who I didn't forget that you said past winner, too. Yeah, one in uh, 2010. Yeah, and I followed Matthew Wolf. Matthew Wolf is. I mean, when he's not playing well, he is not playing well. He, there was one point where I think he was bogey every single hole, yeah. and he shot like an 81 the first day and then a 76 the next, but he didn't make the cut either. It's funny, though, when you look at this tournament, it goes to speak to the golf tournament and the golf course itself. You had so many former winners not make the cut, but then you had other guys like Keith Mitchell, like Rory Sabatini, former winners, that played decent enough to make themselves a decent amount of money. So. It's not the golfer. This course can change very quickly, and you got to see it firsthand. We'll talk about that once we get to but, Sunday. But that, and then after, but after Friday, Berger took that. He was at ten under, and then Kirk was at Chris Kirk was at seven under. Kitiana seven under. Hubbard six under. And Strzok at five under. So Berger had six birdies, one bogey. Looked like he was cruising, and it was great because afterwards I got to see Berger do the interviews. And whereas, like Brooks said, look, a lot of the local people. He didn't criticize them. He says people like Justin Thomas. He didn't say specifically Justin Thomas, but a lot of these stars don't don't they want when they're home they want to be home they don't want to play so he wasn't criticizing them for not playing burger says i love it i like I, my mom cooks for me this i'm like i yeah. like playing high school sleep golf. in own bed he said yeah, sleep in <laughs> bed uh, high school golf my friends get to watch i love playing it and he goes i don't like living in hotels like i hate hotels i like my own bed i like being a comfort i just like those things so burger seemed to me so relaxed interviews thursday friday saturday i'm like I'm like, Mike is right. Like, he's going to run away with this tournament and hide. And it just seemed, I've never seen a leader just so like, this is great. I love it. He was more relaxed than Neiman was, you know, in terms in the Genesis. So I was looking for him, you know, that he was going to definitely, you know, have this big lead, you know, win, win it easily. So we get to Saturday, moving day, and... There was no hitting the brakes for Daniel Berger. He looked phenomenal still. Well, the moving day, as we started out early, you saw no one was even putting up any numbers. So you're, you're waiting for someone in the back who made the cut. And a lot of players did, and they're not that far. That's the great thing about the Honda is it wasn't like people are 15 strokes ahead or whatever. You're waiting for someone to go three under four. No one was doing anything on Saturday. And all Berger did was, you know, one under for the day, stayed at 11. Now, going into 12, going into 18, he it was easy, par 5, uh, 18th. He bogeyed that hole. Yeah. If he birdies that, then he instead of being up five strokes, he's up seven strokes. But he bogeys that, and that was that foreshadowed what happened on Sunday because he came in. Lowry was six under par. Uh, Straka was at six under par. Kitiana was at six under par. And uh, Berger, you know, this is Berger who you know he thought about 2015 against Harrington where they were you know going down the end. He was like nine strokes. He caught his way back. Harrington double bogeyed 17. They go to 
18, Harrington catches him. Then they go play the playoff hole at 18. Then have to go back to 17, and Berger's the one who put the ball in the water. An amazing, yep. thrilling finish. I'm like, this is not going to be a thrilling finish. He has a five-stroke lead. It's the largest lead in the history of the Honda Classic going to the final round. So it's interesting you bring that up, too, though. I've told the story before where I was introduced to Brooks Kepka about five or six years ago. He was the, the sponsor's exemption. The Honda wanted this local kid named Brooks Kepka to play. Same thing with Daniel Berger. Nobody had ever heard of him six years ago. He was 22 years old, and he's taken Patty Harrington to a playoff, and that was the first time I think a lot of people were exposed to him in this community. And now here he is, you know, six years later, poised to win. And I'm watching this, and you don't want to say never, but you're thinking there's just no way he could collapse on Sunday. There's no way he's going to blow this. I, there was none because I, 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 he did, but there was, <laughs> I, in my mind, I still don't believe it because he's seen relaxed. He's familiar with the course, the craziness on the Sunday, on the bear trap and all those things yeah, he's he used it. to. He's played this course a million times. He's not like he's not used to the wins. He knows what's going to happen. He's been through it. He saw Harrington uh, when, when he blew the lead. I mean, there was no reason for him not to have played well. I mean, even on Sunday in his interviews, he's like, what went wrong? He goes, I didn't putt and I didn't play well. He wasn't even, it's like, it was weird, He, but he was so calm. I just, I could not believe what happened. And and, and Sunday was, the the key was that Lowry got in that final group. And that was key that he, when he, when he was able to get the six under, so he, he was paired with Berger. And I think the first hole when he got, I ran, I was following everybody around. I ran over there. I saw the, the, the green on one. Lowry gets the birdie. And then we go to two, and that that I think cutting the lead from five to four was something. And then uh, and then on three, that was the key hole. So three is a weird is a it's a par five, and it's there's the only hole that they have condominiums on the one side. Mm -hmm. And I'm standing there, and Berger goes to address it. He had parred both the first two holes. He comes on, and you hear click click click, and I look around, and I'm like, no one's clicking. I'm videotaping on my camera, but I, I don't hear this click. I don't know where the camera's coming from. And then the next thing, then then I hear it again, and then he goes. Then he's addressing the ball. He he screams, "No, you know, put turn on silent." Is the, the the caddy screaming? Another person screams. This it was whole. Everything is screaming. I, I thought they were yelling at me, but I was on videotape. <laughs> but I think it came from one of the condominiums that that's where on the side because I saw ca people with cameras on that second level. So I think that's where that click 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 came from. They were looking at the wrong side. Well, Berger then rushes, goes, and he hits the ball in the trees, mm -hmm. and then that led to the double bogey. So now suddenly this lead that started at five is now only down to two, and that was because. Lowry had had that birdie, and that was, uh, you know, that was a problem. And then, then Lowry birdied four. Berger just parted. Then it was nine. It was nine eight. And then, uh, and then suddenly uh, um, Berger bogeyed five, and Berger Berger bogeyed six. So suddenly Lowry, after six, you made a comment. This is like Van Veldy. Yeah, Van Veldy. It was more like Van Veldy, almost like Norman. I mean, this was over in five holes. Suddenly he, that five stroke lead after six went. He he lost his entire lead in six holes. It was crazy how it worked out and yeah did you post the video of of the camera on on at iron sports yes, yes yeah so check this out ira thinks that he was looking at him i think it was right of you so i think you're good ira but this I, is I think burger's gonna hate me if he feels like i cost him but it was i was on video my friend said that was you how could it be i was on video there was no way yeah no so it wasn't I, you but it's a great it's interesting to see because we heard it on tv we didn't know that you were right there so go check it out once again at iron sports across social media what happened but there? then on seven that's when burger chipped it in from the sand and that's when you said wow that was amazing on seven he chips it in and this is the first year that you go to seven and eight and actually go up there and see the holes i was right behind him when he chipped it in what a chipping i mean that was saved great. as well it was going downhill fast if he didn't do that <laughs> so that was eight and then but then on 11 lowry birdie to make it you know nine so he had nine under to to burgers eight under and at this point 
Straka is only at seven under. I am not paying attention. I'm no looking attention at the scoreboards. At I don't know if people. Were, I mean, I rewatched the TV. They weren't even showing Straka that much on TV. I watched <laughs> very the rarely. So, <laughs> and then Berger on twelve, Bogey twelve. So now Lowry at twelve has a nine-seven lead, and Straka still at seven. And now you're wondering, Lowry's going to run away with this. Yeah. Like Berger is done and out. Like he'll finish like at seventh or eighth place. Like it's just going south. But then on fourteen, what does Berger do again? He chips. In from the, and that yeah. was an that was even Massive. a more impressive yeah. chip. So that makes it nine eight. And then bef- ahead of them, Straka. Remember, Straka was one group ahead. Straka made a birdie to make that. So he was at eight also. But it's hard for me to you know this, there's not enough scoreboards out there, so it's hard to tell because Straka the timing was so weird. But he was at eight, so it was nine eight eight fifteen everyone parred. And on sixteen. Now, 16 comes in. When we come in 15, that's a par three. Then 16 is the par four. So, you know, in the middle of the bear trap. He struck a birdies, but and but it was so loud that you didn't realize that struck a birdie. But he tied Lowry at nine under at that birdie. So he birdied 16. And then at 17, everyone is pars it out. So really, at that point, I knew that Straka and Lowry were tied at nine under. So, uh, and Lowry just missed a birdie putt yes. on seven. On Barely. Six, it was a very nice putt. Yeah, just missed it. So we go to 18. This is where it gets absolutely crazy. I'm on, I skip looking at the 17 green because I just needed to get to 18 because I know they put a new uh, thing, a new stand behind the tee box. It was going to be perfect to get a great view. So I rush in there to go see this to get to see Lowry and Berger tee off. I'm sitting there and then I, then Berger and Lowry are finishing up. You hear them sort of walking over. A drop of my leg, another drop of my leg. But you know, in Florida, South Florida, within like 30 seconds, it's just boring. Now, Straka, I saw Straka and Kidiana way out there, and they just stood there because it was raining there, I guess, first. So it was it was hitting the rain, and they didn't move. So then Lowry and Berger just waiting and waiting, waiting, and they're standing in the rain. The marshals are there. Then suddenly the whole crowd clears out. Everybody in the stands goes back. Anyone in front there runs away. It was pouring so hard. People thought it was going to be delayed, but there was no lightning, so they weren't delaying it. Straka and Bert hits his second shot, but he, you know, had to be careful. It didn't have to be careful because he was going into the green. The green was softened up, and he then was actually putting for eagle. But then Berger and and uh, Lowry had to wait, and this and it's kept going. You know, the rain's harder and harder and harder. Finally, they put the umbrella over them and took the umbrella away. And Lowry, he could get a good shot off. It was just impossible. You could tell he was flustered. He was flustered with the so he hits it. And at that point, then I couldn't even get out of the stands because there was like a, a river running all around the water was coming down. I walked back. I'm watching then on 18. I'm watching on TV. So I saw Straka come and putt his eagle within, you know, a distance to make it a 10. I knew there's no way Lowry is good. Lowry was lucky just to par that hole. Yeah. And it was just so unfortunate. And I don't think, this is the other point that people didn't mention on TV. It wasn't raining as hard down the green, down the hole where Straka was hitting his second shot. Then it was, we were on the tee box. Yeah, 400 it, yards away. <laughs> it was so, the water, you could, I could not even walk out of the stand. It was like I had to jump in a river to get out of there. It was pouring so much. I don't think that Lowry or a Berger have ever hit a shot with rain coming down like that. No, I mean, yeah, it's not something you don't practice. You know, it was really unfortunate to see the the final hole of such a pivotal, you know, final a pivotal hole of, of a great golf tournament come down to something like that. And we had talked off air. What if it was a tie? What were they going to do? They'd have to go to Monday. Right? To go you to can't Monday. march in the rain back to 17 and play that again. So I thought maybe they, they should have, you know, paused for a minute to see. We knew it was going to clear out of there in a couple of minutes. I mean, 
it is what it is, but, but you also, can tell that they were both not ready to go on 18. But I'll tell you what, Strzok and Kiriano, by waiting, when Kiriano, if they would have just hit the ball, then that would have, because it just kept getting stronger and yeah. stronger. By them waiting, it actually got stronger, so Lowry and Berger couldn't get their tee shots off. So what? So Berger actually went and tried, he had to go an eagle on that last yeah. hole. He hits the ball in the water, and because we understand, Strzok birdied the hole. He was tied, so he gets his birdie, but Lowry had no shot at a bogey, a birdie, because he's hitting in a monsoon. Yeah, he, it, what he does at like 200 yards. I mean, yes. it was, it was he, he was scrambling to save par, as you said. Meanwhile, he needed a birdie just, just to hang on. Interesting way to win. Like, you know, they call it, you know, you back into the playoffs when, you know, like someone else loses. That's kind of how it is. Like, Straka's in the clubhouse just watching on TV, hoping that his score holds up. And of course it did. Yeah, it held up. Well, it, it held up. And then Lowry finished at nine under. Kitiana was eight under. Berger set fourth at seven under. And Gary Woodland was at four under. So he actually, Gary Woodland, the whole day, we haven't talked about him much, but a uh, former U.S. Open winner in 2019, had, was very happy. He's been playing terrible as lately. was happy with that tournament. And uh, Kepka ended up, oh, at, at even par for the round. Or the tournament. Before we wrap uh, up our Honda talk, we didn't mention, you know, that they do a great job of being more than just a golf tournament. Saturday night, I would have thought you were at a club in the Hamptons. It was really impressive. Well, they moved it. Remember, years past, they had it in the I-Bar inside. Yeah. Now, to get in the I-Bar inside, you need like five levels. This was like going to the Super Bowl at the VI Super VIP, but <laughs> there was so much security, you could not get in there. Even And so they pushed everything outside, and then they had this huge tent, which is on the ninth on the uh, on the I'm sorry the, yeah the ninth uh, green and they must have had it seems like a thousand people in the tent with a DJ and then they have the champagne lounge right there so it was going and it, it was and then they had the fire that fireworks show was tremendous so it was really exciting to be there right after and they 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 do a they do a great job with all with I think the bear trap the new double decker on the bear trap mm-hmm. I asked Berger did it affect him with the double decker on the bear trap and he said the only thing he did is they took the flags down because I thought maybe there was le- I felt there was less wind at the bear trap, at least when you're teeing off, because you it, it, it looks like your stadium. It literally looks like you're at the American Airlines Arena or something. <laughs> you have two levels of, of, actually three levels of seats. No, it's really impressive what they've done. Seeing the aerial views on TV was like, you know, blew your mind. Really interesting stuff. Anything else before we get to Ian O'Connor? No, I think it was great. I, I love the Honda. I just, I, I really wish that the field keeps, I mean, it would be great to have some of the other big names come in this. And I hope that next year, I think it's probably gonna be the same time. I just hope that there's some way they'll get, the, uh, you know, more of those type of, you know, some of the top, more top 20 golfers. Let's go to Ian O'Connor. This is Iron Sports. This is 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. Uh, we're honored to have Ian O'Connor, author of the book Coach K that came out this week, considering Duke is probably going to be number one this week, and they play Carolina in the final game at Cameron Stadium for Coach K. I think this would be your great guest to have on. Thanks a lot for coming on, Ian, to Iron Sports. My pleasure, Ira. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. And yeah. I went to Duke Law School, and I'm wearing all Duke, so you know, and I'm you know pumped <laughs> seeing a zillion Duke basketball games in my life. So, But I learned, <laughs> as someone who's followed Duke, I read your entire book. Great, great book, and I learned a lot. Thank so, you. So as someone who watched every game, I just every nuggets, it's just tremendous. But I want to just jump into the, the book right now is about – Talk about Coach K and his background in terms of growing up with his mom and his dad, and I think that sort of molded him to what he is today. No question, Ira. He was a real blue-collar kid, in some ways a street kid, and his parents didn't have high school educations. They were the children of, of Polish immigrants. His mother was a cleaning lady who had two dresses to her name, perfectly pressed, always hanging in her closet. His father was an elevator operator. They basically spent their lives laboring for wealthy people. And, and his father changed his name from Krzyzewski to Cross 
to avoid discrimination, both in edu- uh, employment opportunities and perhaps educational opportunities for his children. They didn't want Mike and his big brother, Bill, to speak Polish in school or to take language classes. They wanted a complete disconnect from the homeland because they thought that would give them the best opportunity to make it in America. So I really feel Mike was shaped by that as a human being and then even as a coach. Just I think there's a competitive rage inside of him that's really been the force behind building the best college basketball program in America over the better part of three, four decades. So I, I think that that really does say a lot about him and his approach. And listen, his mentor, Bobby Knight, would cross the line of acceptable conduct coach to player in terms of, of relationships and just how he coached his team and his players. Mike would go up to that line, but I don't think he would ever cross it. And that was the difference between Knight and Krzyzewski. And you mentioned Bobby Knight recruits him when Bobby Knight's the coach at Army. Coach K didn't want to go to, to Army. His parents said, wow, this is a great opportunity to go to Army. He's looking for reasons not to, but he ends up going there and playing for him. And then you, the whole book, you weave the whole relationship. I mean, this is Shakespearean in terms of his relationship with Knight. They were, they, they had, they were close as close could be co- as an assistant coach. They fell apart and fell back in this, just the, the stories between the two of them and the fact that they have this fractured relationship right now. Right, and it, I think the relationship is over. I, I guess it's possible it could be rekindled here uh, after Mike retires uh, officially. And But he, uh, he did not want to go to West Point. He had no interest in being a soldier. But Bob Knight was very persuasive, and his parents felt that, hey, the sons of very – and at that point, the academy had not uh, admitted any women. The sons of very prominent people in this country go to West Point. So you're going. <laughs> okay, this is a great opportunity. So they would sit in the kitchen, and Mike would be in the living room, and they lived in a small place, and they would speak in Polish. But occasionally they would, in English, say, stupid Mike out loud, so he would know what they were talking about. <laughs> and so finally he decided to go, and you know, Knight really raised him in, in the game and in the business of coaching. Knight helped him. Well, Knight hired him, first of all, in 74-75 at Indiana as a grad assistant, and that was a great, great Indiana team and taught him how to win at the highest levels of Division One. He helped him get the Army job. He helped him get the Duke job. He put him on the Pan Am game staff in 79. So he did a, a lot of helping, advising, counseling over the years. But as Mike started winning, and then, of course, Krzyzewski beat night at the final four in 92, which was the beginning of the end of their relationship. They had a lot of ups and downs, more downs and ups over the years, but it ended at Pinehurst in 2015. There was a West Point reunion. It was the uh, 50th anniversary of Knight's first team at army. And Krzyzewski approached Knight's table and Knight completely ignored him. So, so Mike stormed out of the room and some of his old West Point teammates followed him out the door and he said to them, that is the last bleeping time I ever tried with that, this guy. I, I am done, never again. Now, he had said those words before after some slights, real more than imagined. But this time he meant it. And, and my reporting shows that they never spoke again. We're talking to Ed O'Connor, who wrote the definitive book on Coach K, which is out today. A total must read for any sports fan. And then when he went to Army to be the coach, when he left Indiana, went back to Army, Knight helped him get that he did not have this. I mean, he went, you know, success, but not, I mean, the fact that his final year at Army, he was 9-17. and 17, It doesn't appear to be like the record that someone was going to have to win over 1,000 games. Right, and, and, or even to get a head coaching job in the ACC. Are you kidding me? A Duke had been in the national championship game two years earlier. So to hire a 9-17 and 17 coach at Army, that AD, Tom Butters, 
man, uh, just you would never see an AD take that kind of chance today. But he had a gut feeling, and Krzyzewski was great in the interview process. There was a Duke athletics official at the time, a former player named Steve Vesendak, who was a Krzyzewski supporter. He had seen him coach a little bit, loved the way he coached defense. Butters was a defense guy. So they gambled on him. And in the early years, it got rocky. I mean, Dean Smith wins the national title next door in 82. Jim Valvano wins the national title next door in 83. And Mike's losing to Wagner at home. <laughs> so I don't know how he survived. I really don't. The, the boosters wanted him out, the alums, the students, the fans, even some faculty members. And he survived. And not only that, Tom Butters doubled down and gave him a contract extension. Well, well you said so, in the book, what, you wrote in the book that – that that he called Butters called Knight because he was had fat this you know respect for Knight and Knight said you know what should I do I, I don't want to fire him and but and Knight was the one who gave him the idea you got to extend him yeah and uh, who was sitting in the room at the time a Knight friend uh, a coaching friend and he told him hey listen or he listened to me and he relayed the story to me that basically he felt Butters was calling for Knight's permission to fire Shishes <laughs> now he couldn't. He could. It was Tom Miller who then became the coach at uh, Cornell, and and Tom Miller uh, said, "I'm sitting in the office. I know I can't hear every word that Tom Butters is saying to Bob Knight, but I could tell he. It, it seemed to him that he wanted Knight to say it's okay to fire him, and Knight didn't say that. Knight said, "Give him a contract extension," and Butters eventually did. But man, that that recruiting class, of course, the documentary on ESPN. Jay Billis, Mark Allery, Henderson, but it was Johnny Dawkins that saved Coach K. That was the recruit he needed to suddenly compete against the, the great players at North Carolina from Michael Jordan going forward. And he just didn't have the talent to compete against some of those powerhouse ACC teams. But Johnny Dawkins started the process of him collecting that talent. And they go to the 86 National Championship game, lose to a Louisville team they should have beaten, had the lead on them late, and Mike made a bad coaching decision. He took the air out of the ball. and They started taking bad shots at the end of the shot clock. And Billy Packer on the air said this is a mistake, and he was right. So I think Coach K carried that with him until he won it all in 91. I think that 86 game really haunted him. Well, and then you know, I went to law school with Jay Billis, and, and again, that was the, you know, he not only was da Allery, Dawkins, and Billis, you know, great players, they were quality individuals, and they really set the tone and embraced the whole, um, but as you mentioned, when he first came in, and Duke, Duke, when he got the job, the players that were there under Foster didn't like Coach K. They they rebelled against him, and sort of, and it was that point, but then when he finally got his players in, and you mentioned how great Dawkins is, that sort of set the everything in motion. Yeah, and, and Dawkins... And, and Bill, Billis and, and Allery and Henderson, those were good players, but Dawkins was a special player. And, and as soon as he got on campus, everybody could see it. And he was small. And I remember Jay Billis telling me a story of visiting him for the first time in Washington, D.C. And he hadn't met him yet. This was before they started their, their freshman year. And he was in the area, so he stopped by and, and he knocked on the door and Dawkins answered, but he assumed it was his little brother. He couldn't believe how small he was. <laughs> and and then he was just like, this is, this is Johnny Dawkins? So they ended up playing a, playing a pickup game, I believe it was the same day. And then he said about 10 minutes in, I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. <laughs> you know, this guy's going to be pretty special in college, and uh, despite how small he was and skinny. And certainly he was. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was a long haul getting there. There's a lot of young fans of college sports who have no idea that Coach K at one point was the guy who couldn't win the big one. He was Marv Levy before Marv Levy, and, and Duke was the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills. 
I mean, you lose the national title game in 86. You lose in the Final Four in 88 and 89. You get destroyed in the national championship game in 90 by Vegas. So that 91 game, that rematch against UNLV, really just changed everything. I loved how you broke that game down because, to me, I've, I was obsessed with that Vegas team. It was one of the greatest basketball teams I've ever seen. I would stay up late at night. You know, it was on it. Like, their games were 10 or 11 o'clock at night. They're blowing teams out by 30 and 40 points. And they had already beat Duke the year before by 30. And they were undefeated. They were going to break Bobby Knight's you know, undefeated record. And you're thinking so great. And to me... It was like the combination when you have these two great powers, which people at point did not think Duke was that going to be that power. They were a 10-point underdog. So I think it was, it's rare that you have two dynasties, in college basketball, it's hard to dynasty, but two of these great elite teams that played on one night when they both were at their superpower or strength almost. Yeah, and I was on the Vegas plane, believe it or not, flying uh, from uh, Vegas to Indianapolis, and I sat next to Tark, Jerry Tarkanian, for part of that trip. And, and I remember on that plane, he said, I have nobody to cover Christian Leitner. And, I, and he said it more than once, and I thought he was just one of these heavily favored coaches who was trying to act concerned when he really wasn't. But as it turned out, he had nobody to cover Christian Leitner. <laughs> and so, but it was Bobby Hurley's shot, down five, two minutes and chains left. That three-pointer Hurley made changed everything. If he, if he misses that shot, I, I think Duke loses again. Now you go into the 92 season, Leitner's senior year, and the burden of never winning the big one is still there, and it just got bigger. So it was a special night, a special moment. Of course, it almost in a way reminded me of Lake Placid where the U.S. team beat the much heavily favored Soviet Union team, and it wasn't the final. It's remembered as the gold medal game. It wasn't. It was the semifinal. They had to come back and beat Finland, a good Finland team, and Herb Brooks was terrified of a letdown. And, and I know Krzyzewski was terrified of a letdown after beating an unbeatable Vegas team, which I thought was the best college basketball team I had ever seen. And now you have to come back and beat Kansas for the national title. So if you see on the replay, and you probably Ira, remember this, but as soon as that game's over, Hurley gets the loose ball rebound off the hand, uh, Anderson Hunt brick, and Krzyzewski's out on the court with his palms facing the court, waving downward, like, re- calm down. We didn't win the national title. This is not what we came for. And, and right away, as soon as that game was over, Coach K was coaching for Monday night against Kansas, and it worked out in a pretty good way. And then, I mean, I was at law school. I was at all these three games, but the 91-92, the end of that, in terms of, you know, with Leitner, Hurley, and Grand Hill, the Kentucky game, the, the most some people consider the most famous basketball game of all time, then he meets Bobby Knight in the semifinals in Minneapolis beats Bobby Knight and then to play the Fab Five Michigan team in the championship game. I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, this was crazy. And then he wins, wins the back-to-back title. Right, and I was in the spectrum in Philadelphia for that game. It's probably the greatest play shot moment in the history of college basketball. And just, I, I remember talking to players who, on their way back to the huddle after Kentucky took the lead on Sean Wood's sort of lucky banker with 2.1 seconds left in overtime, they felt like it's over. Okay, well, at least we won the national title last year. We'll get our vacation and golf plans together. And once they got in that huddle and Grant Hill's father, Calvin Hill, the great NFL running back, he said he could tell right away that Krzyzewski grabbed them and seized the moment and convinced them that they could actually pull this off. So they ran the same play they ran against Wake Forest early in the year when Grant Hill fired it three quarters the length of the floor and it curved right to left and went and Leitner caught it, but his foot was on the line out of bounds. So they lose that game. This time he didn't curve it. He threw a fastball, <laughs> a long one, and it was a perfect strike 
strike to uh, Leitner, and Patino helped him out two ways. He didn't put a man on the ball on the inbounds, so Grand Hill had a clear look. And he told the two defenders, Feldhaus and Pelfrey, don't foul. Whatever you do, don't foul. Well, they took that to mean as soon as Leitner caught it, just back off. Well, they gave a guy who hadn't missed a shot all night on the line or from the field a free look. And I'll never forget when that ball was in the air, I was courtside, and I felt like I was looking right over Leitner's shoulder, when, his right shoulder, when he shot it. And a guy, Tim Layden, from, uh, at the time, New York Newsday, was sitting next to me, and we both said the same thing afterward. When that ball was in the air, you could tell it was going in. And that night, Leitner was 10 for 10 from the field, 10 for 10 from the line, one for one from three-point range. So it took the perfect player to win the perfect game. I look across the court. Krzyzewski's got a, a white towel in his hand. He spikes it like a football in the end zone. And later in the press conference, I asked him, outside of strategy, what did you tell your team in that final huddle? And he said, we're going to win the game. We will win. And he got them to believe, and that was his greatness as a coach. And then you mentioned, and people forget this time, he, there was a time right after that, a couple years later, where he has back problems, exhaustion. He had literally stepped away, and, and rarely, and this wasn't like a few years ago. This was 20-some years ago, and he could have ended his career. He could have become like a we, you know, John Madden just passed away. This could have been almost a John Madden situation where through everything else he would just step away, but he stepped away in the middle of the year, but then came back to Duke and coach. Didn't take two years off, just took that year off and then came back as a coach. That's right, and his wife really saved him from himself there. He was in the process of destroying his career. He was driving himself into the ground physically, emotionally, in every way. And there was a day, now he came back too early from back surgery, and he looked like death. That's what his player said. He looked green. He looked gray. His coloring was awful. And he had lost weight. He couldn't eat. I think Mickey said his wife, he looked like he was 80 years old. So she made a doctor's appointment. She had had enough. And she told him, it was right at the same time as practice, basically. I think it was 2 o'clock. And she said, I've never given you an ultimatum of any kind in our marriage, but I'm giving you one today. You will either be at that doctor's appointment today and blow off practice, or I will know you chose basketball over me. <laughs> and so she drove to that appointment, and she was really worried that his car wouldn't be there, but she pulled up and it was there. And so ultimately that led to him taking the rest of the season off to get himself together because he was effectively suffering a mental and physical breakdown. And uh, Pete Gaudet took over. He was terrible as a head coach. The guy was a really good assistant coach, but just not a head coach. Same thing at Army when he took over for Krzyzewski. And Coach K came back. He replaced Gaudet. He, he effectively fired him. Brought in, uh, well, Quinn Snyder. He had uh, Quinn Snyder, I believe, was promoted. And Tim O'Toole was brought in younger, energetic guys, and by 99, a few years later, he had one of his best teams. They go to the national championship game. They're a couple plays away from being 39-0 and uh, in that year, and they lost to UConn. That was maybe his best team that ever lost. But it, uh, he, he adapted. He changed. Mickey was a big figure in his life for these 42 years. He was a, basically the co-head coach. So she deserves a lot of credit for stepping in in 95 and saving Coach K from himself. And you talk about adaption and change and I compare him to Nick Saban in terms of being defensive-minded, defensive-minding, and now having this explosive offense. At first, Coach K was, you know, what, no one's going to be, you know, four-year coach, four-year players. Leitner's going to be there four years. Hill's going to be there four years. And then suddenly he embraced the one-and-done and for the last two decades was, was recruiting the, uh, belt, you know, the players that would just stay for one year and leave the Kyrie Irvings, those type of players. I think the experience, and I know the experience in Beijing in 2008 coaching – Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and company 
that really, when he got back to Durham, that really changed his approach. He said, you know what? I want to coach the best players in the world at any particular level. So to do that, I have to embrace one and done. So he goes after John Wall, loses him to Kentucky. They got in late on John Wall, but he gets Kyrie Irving. Austin Rivers was a slam dunk one and done at the time. They get Jabari Parker, Okafor, Winslow. They win the national title in 2015. What's amazing is in 2010, with the leftover players who were still there, a traditional Duke team of upperclassmen, Zubek and John Shire was the star of that team. They win a national title with that group. Five years later, he wins it with a one-and-done group. So it just showed you how Coach K adapted. I think the Olympic experience certainly had an impact on him in that regard. And I, I'll never forget thinking when he started becoming John Calipari, really, in his recruiting approach, when I was in the spectrum in 92 for that moment, we all thought this is the way Coach K's program will always look. Three- and four-year players upperclassmen and and kids who are graduating, we never in a million years would have thought that he would someday run a, basically an NBA factory. And that's what Duke became. So uh, he changed, he adapted, and that's why he lasted much longer than say Bob Knight and others who didn't adapt. And that's why at age 75, he still has a chance to win his sixth national title. Right. And then, and you address in the book, I mean, this is, you want to say this be the definitive uh, biography of him. And and you did go over and say the question, everyone says, how, you know, did Duke cheat? How does coach K cheat? And you analyze the situations and everything and and talk to the compliance officers and, you know, really put that, I thought gave enough to the book to say, to analyze about the whole issues about, you know, was Duke, you know, did did Duke, were they so good because they were cheating? Yeah, and I don't think uh, Duke is certainly a cheating program. I think they're as clean a program as you're going to find in America at the highest level of of major college basketball. And I think that I don't have in the book anything that Mike Krzyzewski did. There were questions that would pop up over the years about NCAA rules violations and whether third parties got involved. And, hey, it did happen once. It was proven that Corey McGetty took money from an AAU coach. It wasn't a ton of money. It was $2,000. But he should have been ineligible to play that 99 season when he played in 39 games and they won 37. And I talked to coaches who thought Duke and Mike Krzyzewski should have lost those 37 victories. That has happened in other cases. So rival coaches thought the NCAA gave Duke the benefit of the doubt a lot. And that was a, one example. And felt that if the same thing happened at other schools, other programs, those 37 victories, for instance, would have been docked. I I appreciate the fact that Duke gave me access to Chris Kennedy, their compliance director, so I can ask him about that case and others, the Zion Williamson investigation and other issues that popped up. Not many over 40 years, 42 years at Duke, but the Lance Thomas jewelry case and, and like I said, the Zion case and a few others. And so I do explore that in the book And, and, and in any program, no matter how clean you are, there are going to be things that happen that the coaching staff is not aware of. And it gets objective. The NCAA has penalized programs that they believed, for instance, the coaching staff was not aware of a certain kid getting money from an agent or a third party and said that this, this, this program was penalized because the coaching staff should have known even if they didn't. That's objective. So you get to the McGetty case and the NCAA ruled that the Duke coaching staff didn't know and had no reason to know. So where's the line and whether or not you should have known? And that's where rival coaches and schools say Duke gets the benefit of the doubt. 
Right, right. And then you know, you bring up the Zion and, and you mentioned the one team earlier that the Elton Brand team that was so good. I, I thought the Zion team was unbeatable uh, with Zion healthy. I mean, that's the one time we've had Zion healthy and, and they're playing a Michigan State team. And, and you went through that game and where, where he just seemed to not be able to stop R.J. Barrett from shooting the ball when it was like clear. I was sitting three rows from the court. Just throw it to Zion. He's unstoppable. He was going to score every single time. And it just seemed that was so I was so frustrated of all the losses I think I've seen. I think that I saw no reason why Duke could lose with Zion on the team. He was just so, so far superior than every other college basketball player. The coaches I talked to, Iron uh, Pete Gillen's quoted in the book saying this, Pete, of course, the former coach of Virginia, that Mike as an X's and O's guy, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, that's not his strength. And that when you played against Duke, listen, the guy is probably the greatest college basketball coach of all time in the eyes of his peers. But one thing they thought was a bit of a weakness, and his strengths were so profoundly good that it overwhelmed this one weakness, is getting his best player a big shot in a big moment uh, was not something that he was great at. And that game, you see it. There was too much R.J. Barrett at the end of that game and not enough Zion Williamson trying to get Zion in a position on the floor to get him a beneficial shot to maybe beat Michigan State. And that did not happen in that game, and that was an example of that that uh, he's the best motivator ever. He is very good defensively. And it's interesting because the guy drew up the greatest play in, in the sports history. <laughs> right. And yet and yet people think he's not great in endgame situations on offense. But uh, that, that was something that came up repeatedly in my interviews. And the last thing we have, we're fortunate to have Ian O'Connor about his book, Coach K, tremendous book. And I think the issue from the whole book is like the last five pages you address in terms of the naming a successor. And a lot of people thought, I mean, myself thought maybe Quinn Snyder would be the name, but you show in the book that no, it was not going to be Quinn Snyder, but it really came down between Tommy Amaker at Harvard and uh, John Shire, who's assistant on his staff. And you went through in the book in terms of the decision that was made to put, make Shire the successor and how it was done. Right. The university offered the job to Amaker, a guy in his mid-50s who had been a head coach at Seton Hall, Michigan, and, and then now Harvard. And, and Mike didn't want that to happen. And Mike was close to Amaker, and uh, I don't think they are anymore, to be honest with you. But he, uh, he felt that it was better for Duke basketball and for Mike's own influence in that program in retirement to have the younger guy in his 30s, uh, Shire was, what, 33, now 34, had never been a head coach anywhere else. He was a uh, basically a creation of Coach K. Uh, as a player, he'd never coached anywhere but Duke, and he was a national championship player for him in 2010. So Shire gets the job. Krzyzewski's keeping his office on the sixth floor at Duke. He, he wants to be involved in the program. And this is a way of, he called it a continuity of excellence. And he, and he said, I learned this at West Point. You want to have a succession plan in place. And Amaker has been away from Duke for 24, 25 years. So he felt Amaker would come in with his own ideas on how to run a program. Krzyzewski wanted his program to be continued. Shire would allow him to do that in a way that Amaker wouldn't. So he talked to Tommy on a Zoom call, explained to him why it wouldn't be in the best interest of Duke for him to be the head coach. He'd have to demote an assistant coach Nolan Smith back to director of basketball operations to make room for Amaker for one year. And he thought it'd be an awkward dynamic between him and Shire on that staff in this final season of coach K. So Amaker having a, a very good job in life at Harvard said, I, I think I should just keep this job. He could have taken it and said the heck with it and the heck with coach K, but he decided he had a good life at Harvard and he opened the door for Shire to be the next head coach. 
Ian, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, there's probably be an epilogue. We'll see. I mean, Duke has the Carolina game this weekend, and then they're going to ACC tournament, and then maybe he's going to win his sixth title. Um, this is just a great time for the book to come out and just to give me an exciting ending of Coach K's career. So, Ian, thanks a lot for coming on I Run Sports. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Ira, and I hope that happens. I hope they win it all. And and by the way, UCLA did send off John Wooden with his tenth national title. So let's hope Duke does it for uh, for Coach K for number six. <laughs> I'm wearing all Duke. I'm going to be. I'm pumped for it. So we'll see what happens. But it's, this is going to be very. This is this tournament, and we saw when you saw the top, you know, six teams in the country lose in the same night. That uh, there's about you know 15 maybe teams that can win the title. So I'm really excited for the tournament this year. Yeah, I think I think Duke needs Paolo Bancaro to be more consistently aggressive and pose his will on the game more than he has for much of the regular season. He's an amazing talent. There, there are periods in the game where he sort of disappears and you can't do that in the NCAA tournament. So hopefully for Duke's sake, he stays aggressive for what could be a six game run. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Ian. I really appreciate it. Take care. Ira. Great stuff there from Ian O'Connor. This is Iron sports, true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So, Ira, not really sure what's happening in Jupiter. We mentioned it earlier. The owners and the Players Association for Major League Baseball are meeting. They'd said that if they don't come to an agreement today, MLB is ready to push the season off a month, shorten the season by a month. Not, not good stuff. No, I mean, we're taping the interview at 3.30. I, I, I said, what if something, what if they come to a settlement? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, they might be doing a whole month worth of shows until they even come before a settlement. But yeah, we talked about before, it, it really is on minutiae, which they're fighting over in terms of, and it's really, I think, the players pushing for, not pushing for a full cap that, that has a floor. We see what happened today. We're gonna, I'm gonna jumping you in terms of story. Derek Jeter resigns yes. from the Marlins. One of the reasons was he wanted the Marlins to spend more money. They didn't want to spend the money until these teams, the Pirates, the Marlins in Tampa Bay are forced to spend money. They're not going to spend the money. And that's the players keep saying the last four years, our average salary has gone down. That's the reason it goes down. <laughs> you need, but their owners will not agree to a cap unless you, the players agree to a floor. The players won't agree to a floor. And that's the issue. No, yeah, they need a floor and teams, you know, I hate to rag on your Pirates or, or the, you know, the two Florida teams, but it's clear the Pirates do not want to spend any money. There's free free agents out there. They're not a good team, but it's you can't be in a constant rebuild. They've been doing this for you know a decade now. Well, they're not even having the players go to arbitration. They're trading players after yeah. two, three years <laughs> while they're just in their rookie contracts. Now, from the owner's perspective, I don't understand why they won't agree to like increase the mid average, the mid the minimum salary to like maybe seven, eight hundred thousand. Like I think that's crazy that they don't in- agree to that. But it's just one of these things where the players, the last couple of negotiations have have lost, and now they're trying to win it all back uh, at one with one negotiation. But and and, you know, they wait to the last minute to do these things. I know how negotiations are done, but you would like to see this. And I'm, as someone who loves spring training baseball, we're missing. This is the third year in a row. I mean, remember, three years ago, COVID hit the, yeah. like the last week and a half. Last year was was uh, truncated with the spring training and how it was done because of COVID. And now we have this. And it's just it's a shame because you just love. We have four teams here. I, I, like, I, want, I like to go to spring training, and I won't get that opportunity. Spring training games are great. It's great for the local community, and it's unfortunate that uh, we're not having it here. Tonight, you, that's why we uh, taped the show uh, on Monday afternoon, because you're going to see the top two teams in the Eastern Conference face off in Miami. Don't know if they're too bad. I mean, Milwaukee, well, Philadelphia. Standings-wise. wise but I mean, the Bulls have had, uh, they added DeMar DeRozan, who was an all-star. Yeah. Zach Levine, who's playing great. Uh, Vukovic, their centers, but well, uh, Lonzo Ball's still hurt, but he'll come back. Um, but this will be great. The Heat have been playing great. This is, this is an amazing Heat team, and uh, they're winning all different ways with players. I mean, that's the one thing. The Heat have lost players during the year and they still have the best record in the East. So I'm excited to go for my first heat game this year. Um, 
we saw James Harden debut for the Sixers and looked pretty good. Oh, wow. I mean, he, first of all, he was limping around. To talk about recovery, to go up from uh, uh, Brooklyn, go, go south on the turnpike. From I never saw someone get, improve so much. I mean, he's in Brooklyn. And he's limping around, can't even move. He comes down to Philadelphia. In his first game, he had 29 points, 16 assists, 10 boards. Embiid had 37 points, 9 rebounds, 4 blocks. This was against the Knicks. But the point is, Embiid was 23 of 27 from the line. Harden was 10 for 10. These are the two best free throw shooters in, in, in basketball and getting to the line and scoring. And I think running the pick and roll, we talk about Stockton Malone pick and roll. This could be the devastating, the Harden Embiid pick and roll was, could just be devastating. What's going on in NASCAR? Kyle Larson won the California race um, and Vegas is next. I've been to that race a couple years ago. I loved it. So, but I'm not going this year, but I just, <laughs> I love that race. And uh, what about tennis? I stayed up one of these nights and watched Nadal play Medvedev in the semifinals of Mexico. And Medvedev, you know, these are the two right now with Djokovic, the two, three, three best players. And Nadal had a good win over Medvedev. It was a good match. It was, it takes some time. I loved it. And uh, great win. And the weird thing about Sasha Zarev, who we've talked about, who's been in the finals of the U.S. Open and everything, he, uh, he got upset in a doubles match at the end and started using his racket to hit the chair umpire. And he only got a fine, but not the chair umpire, but the, the stand that chair umpire mm. was on. Like he could have knocked the chair umpire off the stand. And I'm like, wow, I think these other people that get, you know, fined or whatever, so wish they tennis would find them. I mean, there was only a fine for attacking the chair. The chair umpire was it's like if you went up to a coach on the other team, it was like hitting his hitting the chair he was sitting on. <laughs> Not the clipboard out of his hand or something. Uh, let's go to Gary Pomerantz. This is Iron Sports. This is 959-106.9. Iron Sports. We're honored to have Gary Pomerantz, the world's foremost expert on Wilt Chamberlain. And the reason we're having Gary on to talk about Wilt was this is coming up on March 2nd is the 60th anniversary of the most famous game, really, in terms of individual performances, his 100-point game. Thanks a lot, Gary, for coming on Iron Sports. It's fun to be on with you, Ira. So tell me about Hershey Park Arena in 1962. I mean, talk about, the, you, you, you break this down. There wasn't media. There was no ESP. There was nobody there. And there's not even an audio recording of the game. Right. Well, there is actually of the fourth quarter play-by-play on WCAU radio. But that's it. No TV. Uh, the game was launched into sports mythology and it lives in the imagination. 100 points, one player. Sports likes to use this term triple-double. Well, here's the only single triple in NBA history. Wilt Chamberlain was 25 years old at the time. He was a luminous figure. He lived in New York at a fancy apartment off Central Park, and he played games and went down to practices in Philadelphia. He had his own racehorse. He had a Bentley. He had a Harlem nightclub he co-owned, Big Wilt Smalls Paradise. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he moved through it. He moved through it like like he owned all of New York. And then at the game that night, there wasn't 100,000 people at the game or 50,000. There was. They had the announced crowd was 4,000 people. And you said that the photographer went home at halftime. So really the only yeah. way, there's not even pictures of the game except that final where Wilt's holding the 100 sign up because someone brought found someone sitting in the stand to take that picture. So, so the, you have to put aside all notions of the NBA today, the glamour, the glitz, the exploding lights. Back then, the NBA was like a lounge act, you know, in search of itself. It was a carnival. You know, the old joke went that the crowds were so small that the PA announcers would introduce the, the starting lineups, and then they would introduce each fan. <laughs> Phil from Hershey and Paul from, from Harrisburg. And so here's the 75th game of a 100 
I'm sorry, of an 85-game season. Wilt averages 50 points a game that season. He averaged that, an all-time record. And, and you know, it was prophesied that if the, the planets aligned, the big guy could do it. He was seven foot one, 260 pounds. You know, today people like to think, oh, he just dunked 50 times against shorter players. Well, he didn't dunk 50 times. In fact, the real miracle of Hershey was that Wilt made 28 of 32 free throws, and he was shooting them underhanded. He would bend down low, and he would he would his knees would flare out. He, he kind of looked like a, an adult trying to sit in a kindergartner's chair. And then was it like, you mentioned, Wilt has not just the 100-point game, but the 78, 73, and 72. But as the game was going on, I mean, the score of the game was what, 169 to... Uh, it was like it was 169, 147. I mean, was there a point in the game where people realized, well, this he's going to score 100 points in a game? Or, or was it just they weren't – like today, if this happened, the world would stop if someone was close to 100 points. Yeah, and everybody in the crowd would be sending out tweets, Wilt's got 80, Wilt's got mm-hmm. 85, and so forth. It would build up. ESPN sound trucks would be circling Hershey Arena. Uh, but this wasn't today. This was back then, you know, just 10 days after John Glenn orbited the Earth. Look, no one could look up at the big board and see number 13 has 80 points because there was no big board. <laughs> All they had is an old metallic scoreboard most, mostly used for hockey by the Hershey Bears hockey team. But everything changed with about seven and a half minutes to play when the, the famous PA announcer Dave Zinkoff, Zink, announced, ladies and gentlemen, a new scoring record has been set by Will Chamberlain. He has 79 points. And at that moment, Ira, everything intensifies. The, the warrior players, their curiosity. Can the big fella do it? And remember, for a guy to score 100 points, he not only has to have a healthy ego, he's got to have teammates who are willing to be accomplices. And for the New York Knicks, it's this sense of dread that intensifies, like, my gosh, if we give up 100 points to this guy, people are going to be talking about it on radio in 60 years. Well, And we are. We're talking about it right and now. And we are. <laughs> so, yes, we are. And, and then after the game happened, after 100 points, was it – I have a question. Like, did he ever say, okay, did he – when he hit 100, was it the, like the final point in the game? Or like, did he, did he take himself out of the game? Or, or when – because they are up by 22. When he had finally hit 100, what happened at that moment? Well, all heaven broke loose in Hershey. You know, the, the the sons of the chocolate factory workers broke onto the court. They had been lined three, four, five deep around the court as Wilk got 96, 98. And he scored on a so-called dipper dunk. He was the big dipper with 46 seconds to play. And that's when the fans stormed the court. And one of those young fans, a 14-year-old boy named Kerry Ryman, actually stole the ball, outraced uh, Hershey Constable's up the arena steps and out of the arena through the nearby amusement park and home to his house, I kid you not, at 50 West Chocolate Avenue. And he says, Mom, Mom, Will scored 100 at the arena. I got the ball. And she looks at him huffing and puffing, and she says, give the ball back. Oh, my. And he did. He did. He kept it, and he played with it. There was no real thing as, you know, as today with sports memorabilia in it healthy market. So he played with it. He put it away and he was convinced to put it on the market in auction after Will died at the age of 63 in 1999. 
And do you know, Ira, that ball sold for $551,000. But there was a controversy. An official from the, the, the Philadelphia Warriors, then the 76ers, named Harvey Pollock, said that wasn't the right ball. We took the ball Wilt scored it with out of play. So they suspended the auction. They, the Leland's Auction House in New York did its due diligence. They came back about six months later, put it on uh, again, uh, put it on the auction block. And, and whenever, you know, an auction item, its authenticity is even slightly questioned. Its value goes down. And this time it sold for significantly less, $67,000, $484,000 less than the first time. <laughs> well, Gary, I really appreciate it. I know you're extremely busy, and I really appreciate you coming on. We have the anniversary coming up in a couple of days of this 100-point game, and uh, I doubt we will ever see another 100-point game. I mean, Kobe's 81 was uh, was was close, but but still so far away. So, But I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports and talking about Wilt's 100-point game. Fun to talk with you, Ira. Thanks for having me on the show. Another great show just about in the books here, Ira. So in, uh, with uh, exception of tonight's game, uh, they're going to in Miami. What are you going to do this week? I was thinking about, you know, the Sixers play the Heat on Saturday, but I am so excited for Duke Carolina Saturday night. Yeah. I'm pumped for that game. I'm, it is, uh, I mean, $4,000 to get into a regular season college basketball Crazy. game, which seems nuts. So I'm not going to be there, but I certainly will watch it on TV. So I didn't want to go, but I think really just, I'm going to go to the Heat game. This this will be this will be the one game this week. So Heat, Heat, the Bulls tonight. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Ian O'Connor and Gary Pomerantz. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.